0: you're a Christian, you need to be able to answer this question. How should a Christian relate to the world? How should a Christian relate to the world? I'll start by giving you two wrong answers to the question, okay? Two ends of the spectrum, but two ends that I think you'd you'd probably admit you drift towards one or the other. When we think about how should Christians relate to the world, uh, you likely drift more towards being what we'll call a camouflage Christian or what we'll call a commune Christian. Okay, so camouflage Christian, uh, someone who blends in, someone who is hidden in plain sight. It's like they're wearing camouflage all the time. There's no real distinction uh, around ethics or entertainment or anything, uh, between a camouflage Christian and the world around them, a camouflage Christian's friends might even be surprised to find out that their friend is a Christian. They're hidden so well. So that's a camouflage Christian. That's one end of the spectrum. Commune Christian is the complete other end of the spectrum, where you just think we don't want to blend in. We want to completely separate. So we'll start a commune. We'll just we'll live completely isolated from the world around us, and uh, that way that that's the safest. That's the safest hand we could possibly play. And the the commune Christians' friends, uh, they don't have non-Christian friends, so there's no way for them to know whether they were Christians or not. Now, those are two ends of the spectrum and how Christians are to relate to the world. And I'll say it's a spectrum because there's a lot of stopgaps in between those two. But I'll give you a hint that the Bible's answer to the question, how Christians are to relate to the world, is neither of those. It's not to live in camouflage, and it's not to hide in a commune. Because both of those are just shrouded in secrecy. But the Bible talks a lot about how Christians are to relate to those around them, how we are to engage with the world around us. And so that's impossible with both ends of that spectrum. But we are still left with the question how are Christians to relate to the world around them? We see that answered many places in Scripture. But our passage this morning in Titus chapter 3 answers that question for us as well. And we see right away in uh, chapter 3, verses 1, Paul, as he writes to Titus, uh, writes uh, this younger pastor in, in the work that he needs to do in Crete for these new churches, he starts right away by saying, remind them. Remind them. And then he goes on to list seven things. Seven things that they are to be reminded of in these first two verses. But before we even get to those seven things, it's interesting that he tells Titus to remind them of things. I mean, that means that they knew these things. They just needed a reminder. And we need reminders often. We could illustrate this a thousand different ways. But we need reminders often even when we know something. Take mustard, for instance. I'm not a big mustard guy. I'm a ketchup guy. But mustard, I've seen people put mustard on things probably hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. And the majority of those people that I've seen put mustard on things, uh, it's probably not their first rodeo. You know, it's not their first encounter with mustard. They've done it before. But 99% of the time, they just pick up the mustard and that weird mustard water comes out on their hot dog. Right? They, they, they know that that's going to happen. But it it happens every time. They forget to shake up the mustard thing. We need reminders often, even when we know things. We need reminders often, even when we know things. And this is what Paul tells Titus to do. He's saying, remind them. Remind them of these things that they already know, but they so easily forget. And that's what this passage is for us this morning as well. We need a reminder of things that we likely already know, but we need reminders of because they're important. Then he goes on to list these seven things, okay? You can measure yourself against these seven things. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people man that's a list but that's the answer to the question ask that question at the beginning how are christians to relate to the world that's the answer boom we found the secret we've cracked the code we can go home no because if you're anything like me we can look at this the secret to living in the world around us and you feel defeated If you're honest and you measure yourself against those seven things, you feel crushed. Because we cannot do those things on our own. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Wow. How do we do that? And so we get crushed if we only look at the secret. What we need is a secret to the secret. And that's exactly what Paul does in this text as he writes to Titus. He lays out these seven things that Titus is to remind the Christians in Crete of and then he immediately goes into the secret of the secret. He grounds these commands, these truths in something so much bigger, something so much more powerful than just our own volition and obedience. He grounds these things in the gospel. And that is where we find hope. That is the absolute core of our passage we cannot miss this don't come away today only with practical practical exhortations this is not good advice It needs to be grounded in good news and so our big idea from our passage this morning is this god saved us to be ready and to be devoted to good works god saved us to be ready and to be devoted to good works and we need both parts of that big idea Right? We need the gospel culture, this is what we talked about last week, to be ready and devoted to good works. That's, that's how we live out the gospel. But we also need those first three words of the big idea, that God saved us. Because to have gospel co- culture, we need to have gospel doctrine. And to believe gospel doctrine, we need to live it out in gospel culture. So God saved us to be ready and devoted to good works. John Stott describes this section of gospel doctrine where Paul goes to back up his argument here as perhaps the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament. That's a bold claim. Perhaps the fullest statement of salvation in the New Testament. And it's this salvation that I want us to focus on this morning. I want us to look deeply and closely at God's work in salvation and from there, let that be the springboard for us to understand exactly how we are to relate to the world around us. And so we're going to look at God's mercy in salvation, God's method in salvation, and God's mission in salvation. God's mercy, God's method, and God's mission. And I hope you're encouraged. First, God's mercy in salvation. Well, first in the passage, we don't see a description of who God is, as we consider his mercy. The first thing we get in the passage in verse 3 is a description of who we are. Or if you're in Christ, a description of who we were. Verse 3 says, for we ourselves, Paul's including him in, in this, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice in envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is not a fun list, but it is important. So we need to consider it as we think about God's mercy and salvation. This follows this pattern of the New Testament, this before and after, now but then, right, old self, new self. We're in the old self here, and as we look through, you just follow along in Verse 3, as we look through these different descriptions of who we once were, who we are apart from Christ, it says that we are utterly lost. We are foolish. To be a fool is to lack not only knowledge but also sense. It means we're prone to wander. The Bible describes uh, us who are prone to wander, us apart from Christ, like sheep. We have gone astray because sheep are fools. We are foolish. But we're not just passive in our wandering. We see immediate laughter. We were once foolish. Disobedient. We defy God's authority over us. This is the root and nature of all of our sin. We disobey. We rebel. We choose our own way instead of God's way. And we see because of this. Because we're foolish. And because we're disobedient. We are next led astray. We allow ourselves to be enticed. We allow ourselves to be led astray, it says, because we are slaves to various passions and pleasures. We are trapped by something. We are slaves to various passions and pleasures. There's probably someone here who's a dog expert that could give me real facts about this. But I've heard that the dogs that are most likely to run away are one of two types of dogs. Uh, Either ones that have a really high prey drive, they love going after things, or dogs with amazing senses of smell. Because the ones with a really high prey drive, they'll see a squirrel and they'll bolt. All the training goes out the window. They are gone. They are absolutely fixed and focused on the thrill of the chase and the hope of reward. And dogs who have an amazing sense of smell, they follow their noses. They catch a whiff of something and they follow it. And all of a sudden, an hour later, they're like, where am I? Right? They're, they're, in, they're kilometers from home. We are like this in a much more serious and significant way. As we read verse 3 and we consider the way we live, we chase after passions without fear or thought of consequence or implication. And we follow our proverbial noses to all kinds of pleasures. We become slaves to those things. We're led astray. And we see too that in verse 3, sin doesn't only poison our own life, it poisons our relationships. Gives us these toxic twins, malice and envy. Malice and envy, that is the lethal injection to relationships. Malice is wishing someone evil and envy is resenting when they have something good, right? Coveting that thing. It's just a horrible state to live in. If we live in malice and envy, there's just no right way we could have a good relationship because we're either wishing someone evil or resenting or coveting their good. And so no wonder verse 3 comes to a close talking about hating others and, and being hated by others. It's not a flattering picture. It's not a fun description. It's not what I would want written in my bio or my obituary but it's an honest assessment of our sin. But this is exactly what displays God's mercy. I'll do another dog illustration for you. Imagine you were looking to adopt a dog. We'll call him Spot. You were looking to adopt this dog, Spot. You went on the website or you looked at the little pamphlet, and it, this was the description of this dog. And this is a bit facetious. I understand this illustration. This dog is not only unintelligent, it's foolish. It's naturally disobedient. Runs away constantly. Loves running into traffic. It's constantly looking to make your life miserable. Gets agitated and aggressive when you're happy. It hates other dogs. And other dogs hate it. Whoever adopts that dog... There's no other way to describe them than absolutely merciful. This is exactly what God does for us. He doesn't owe us salvation, we don't deserve it. The adoption rap sheet that hangs over us is worse than this metaphorical dog. But in salvation, God's mercy is on display because we weren't just bad our sin is so opposed to god and his perfection and holiness that it it talks about in the bible that we are spiritually dead but verse 4 cuts into this passage like sunlight in a dark room don't get tired of hearing this kind of news for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient of God's grace and kindness are on display in salvation. This is grace and grace alone, not works. Good works are not good enough. This is the giant hole in every false religion that says just do good enough. Maybe you can tip the scales just enough to be made right with God. That's not how it works. Our sin is so vile and offensive against God's perfection. There's just no way we could ever do enough the Bible talks about how our good works are like filthy rags. but This is what makes Christianity so distinct and so good. Because it's God's goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace. That's why he saved us. Not even our most redeeming qualities can make us any more lovable. And that should feel like terrible news. Right, imagine trying to sell that product, saying there's just nothing, nothing you can do will make you any more lovable. You we, we don't stand a chance. And that would be terrible, terrible news if it wasn't for God's amazing grace. The fact that it's, it's His MO, it's His very character, it's His very being, it's just who He is to be gracious and merciful. That is such good news, and that's so much better than simply being good enough. God's mercy is displayed in every facet of salvation. Because salvation is not just like a stamp of approval or a golden ticket. That'd be far more than we deserve. But it's actually so much more. And we see that just illuminated as we continue in the passage and as we look through Not just God's mercy and salvation, but God's method in salvation. God's method in salvation. What was God's method? What does God do? Well, I want to talk this morning about two inseparable doctrines that work in tandem. Okay, and I don't want to get you lost in theological terms. They're big words, but it's not complicated to consider these things. But the first I want to talk about is what we talked about earlier in the service. This is what was recovered in the Reformation. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is the hope of the gospel. And this is completely essential to salvation. This is completely essential to biblical Christianity. If you compromise this, you compromise the gospel. Justified by faith alone. And this is completely essential to biblical Christianity. But I actually think we do a pretty good job of talking about this a fair bit. I think we talk about it a fair bit. But also, that works in tandem, is this other doctrine, which is the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. And it was these two doctrines that... Uh, Preachers in the 1700s, like George Whitefield, when talking about the Great Awakening, this amazing revival and work of God, talked about these two doctrines needing to be held up together. The doctrine of justification by faith alone and the doctrine of regeneration. They're essential. Now, what is this doctrine of regeneration? Well, it's that God gives us a new heart. God grants us a new birth. God gives us new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is regeneration. It's complete transformation. Look at the way he describes in verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's going to sound graphic, but we don't need a Band-Aid when we're dead. And the Bible talks about us being spiritually dead. And so we don't need a Band-Aid in that moment. We need life. And this is the good news of the doctrine of regeneration. This is the good news of what God does in salvation. That it is so much bigger than a decision we make. It's something that God does in us. Because sin sticks to us. And absolutely nothing we can do can make ourselves clean of that. No no amount of effort, it says, no amount of good works can get ourselves clean. It's only God's work. Only the washing and regeneration of the Spirit that can make us right. We can do all the right things, right? Prayer alone doesn't save us. Baptism alone doesn't save us. Being good alone doesn't save us. Only spiritual regeneration. Now these things are good. God's commanded us to pray. We need to go to God, turning from our sin, trusting in Christ for salvation, asking for God to give us a new heart. We are commanded to live rightly. That's exactly what bookends this passage that we're looking at and really is the theme of this entire book of Titus. And we're commanded by Christ to be baptized. It's in our baptism that we symbolize these exact spiritual realities. This washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We see it even in the ways that baptism is described. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. New life. I can only come from God. And this is exactly what a biblical understanding of conversion is. That the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead gives us new life. And we use this word regeneration in different ways, right? We think about healing. Our body is amazing. We can heal. We're like Wolverine, just a lot slower. But our bodies heal. If you cut yourself, skin regrows. It's crazy when you think about it. You break a bone, the body uh, creates new tissue and and knits these pieces of bone back together. It's amazing. But that pales in comparison when you look at some animals. I was reading this week about this salamander in Mexico that can regenerate almost any limb or organ or body part. Chop its arm off, boom, grow a new arm. It's crazy. But neither of these are even close to being comparable to the regeneration of what the Holy Spirit does in our heart. Because when God regenerates us, it's not simply a scar or an imperfect repair. When God regenerates us, it's not like he's just replacing a part of us. When the Bible talks about regeneration, it talks about being made brand new. And this work that is essential to our salvation is all of God's work. It's all God's work. This is why Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he talks about being born again. What's the one thing in life that you've had absolutely no contribution to? Your birth. He talks about being born again, being made brand new. And Nicodemus is confused. He's like, I'm old. How do I be born again? But, but it's amazing the way to think about regeneration in those terms. That it's not just a cover-up. It's not just a, hey, let's set that behind, and if I need to bring it back, we'll bring it back. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation means no condemnation. We are made new. It's the hope of the world. And it's not a new you that you create. It's not a decision that you make. This is God's work in us. This is God's method in salvation. And it's essential. Neglected that we talk about it, but essential. That if you are not regenerated, you're not a Christian. But this is our hope. Those three words at the beginning of verse 5, he saved us. Don't ignore how mind-boggling those words are, that he Saved us. Remember that us is verse 3. Remember that us is when you look in the mirror and you know all your faults, all your problems, when you consider your own life. He saved us. He does this through the work of His Spirit, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It says in verse 6, whom he poured out on us. This is how the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit happens. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the hope of the gospel. Gospel literally just means good news. And the good news is that God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, knew He's not ignorant to the fact that verse 3 is the perfect description of our hearts, that we are spiritually dead. But it was exactly that reality, and it was exactly his mercy that had him think up this method to save us, that he would send his own son into the world, his own son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to never be described in any way what we see in verse 3. Jesus was never foolish. He was never disobedient. He was never led astray. He was no slave to various passions and pleasures. He never passed his days with malice and envy. He didn't hate others. He was perfect. And yet, as the sinless son of God, he died for the sins of the world. He paid the penalty that we deserve. That separation from God, the punishment, the spiritual death that we needed to experience because of our sin was Taken in full by Jesus Christ. It's how we're justified. Because Jesus in his perfect righteousness, in us, in our disgusting wickedness, he said, I will take their place. I will stand in their place. All of that vile wickedness, that disobedience, being led astray, foolishness, let it fall on me. So that God, when he looks at us, sees Christ in his perfect righteousness. Righteousness. It's the only way we can be made right with God. And that exchange that's absolutely mind-boggling, it doesn't even just end there. It's that God's Spirit would regenerate our dead hearts, make us right with God, and change everything about us. That's the hope of the gospel, that if we would turn from our sin. And trust in Christ alone for salvation. We could be made right with God. Our heart could be regenerated. We could be washed clean. And we ground ourselves in this hope. So that being justified by his grace. His grace is is giving a gift that we don't deserve. It's his unmerited favor. We might become heirs. Which we never deserve to be to the hope of eternal life. We don't think enough about heaven, I don't think. We don't think enough about eternal life. Richard Baxter, Puritan from a couple hundred years ago, he said he used to spend 30 minutes a day just thinking about heaven. That was the only way that he could persevere through trial. It's how we can have hope, hope of eternal life. And if you don't know this hope today and you are here, don't delay. Don't live your life just stuck in verse 3. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. It's a free gift, it's a gift that feels too good to be true. But there's hope. So don't leave here today without considering what this means for you. What this regeneration means. That this isn't just something we sign up for or like something we label ourselves. I I identify as a Christian. That's that's no Christianity according to the Bible. This is regeneration. This is a new heart. And so call out to God and, and ask him for a new heart. Say, God, change me. Do the work that only you can do and save me. Take my sin, my rebellion, you know it all anyway. And give me Christ's righteousness. You know what, God's merciful enough, kind enough, that there's no qualifiers with that. It's a free gift. Don't leave here today without considering that truth. And Christian, don't leave here today without considering this hope. You are a miracle. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, you know, blind people could see. Deaf people could hear. Even dead people were raised to life. That's exactly what's happening with your heart. If you're a Christian, you are no less a miracle. It's truly good news. This death to life regeneration so don't leave with just the the stamp of i'm a christian consider again the hope of the gospel that god's mercy is on display in salvation and that god's method of salvation is mind-bogglingly good news and all this brings us to god's mission in salvation god's mission in salvation god saving his people is is the story of the bible from the beginning, God created man and woman in his image to glorify him, to have dominion over the earth, but so quickly spiraled into sin. I mean, you could read Genesis 3 this afternoon and just see it in exactly a case study in Titus 3, 3, that they were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's, I mean, that's the, what happened in the garden. And that's what happened continually through the Old Testament. That's what happens continually up till this point. That we sin over and over again. But time and time again, the story of redemption, the story of God working in creation, is that he keeps redeeming his people. He keeps giving us hope. His mercy is on display time and time again. God makes these huge, uh, even world-changing promises I've talked about these big promises before kids. Anyone remember what one of these big promises that God makes with his people are? It's not a rhetorical question. Does anyone remember? Adults? A big promise. Covenant. Covenant. Throughout the Bible, God makes these huge promises that he will save his people, that he will bless them. In the Old Covenant, uh, it, was, it was about following God's law, and then we, uh, people had to make sacrifices to atone for their sin. But even through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, even in Genesis 3 itself, right when Adam and Eve sinned, God makes promises that one will come someday who will be the ultimate fulfillment of this salvation. And other promises, like what we read in our scriptural assurance of forgiveness, of this new covenant, this, this washing that will happen. And then in Jeremiah 31, uh, God says that I will make a new covenant, not like the old covenant. He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. And this is exactly what we see happen when God sends his own son into the world. This is exactly what we see happen when the Holy Spirit indwells believers and changes their hearts. This is the new covenant. Reality that we live in. God saving his people is his mission. In our call to worship, we get a a little purpose statement in Ephesians chapter 2. We get one of those so that's. Anytime you see a so that, it means pay attention. So it talks about we were dead in our sin, but God in his mercy saved us. Why? So that, this is Ephesians 2, verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is calling a people to himself. His mercy, his kindness, his immeasurable goodness is on display in saving people. A people for his own possession. That's what we saw last week as we looked at Titus. A people, a church lived out in local churches made up of sinners saved by grace made up of regenerate hearts and the call here that the such clear application as we think about God's regenerative work in our hearts is how we are to live that a regenerated heart demands a life that reflects it and we will sin and we long for the day when we will be freed from sinning. But if we go on in unrepentant sin, there's just simply no way that we can claim that we know God. Because we see, in, uh, we see another so that in Titus 3. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then Paul bookends this little section by saying, the saying is trustworthy. You better believe it is. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. God has called us to live this new identity. Good works are evidence of God's regenerative work in us. And we, need, we are right to be careful with that kind of language. When we talk about good works. And Paul's careful. He's explicit right in verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. So it's good. we got to be careful. We are not saved by works. The Bible is so utterly clear. But we need to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Of all these passages that tell us how we are to live as Christians, answers to the question that we need to be able to answer, how are Christians to relate to the world around us? Well, The Bible says we're to be devoted to good works. Gordon Fee, a biblical scholar who actually went to be with the Lord this week, he wrote this. The dominant theme in Titus is good works. That is exemplary Christian behavior, and that for the sake of outsiders. It is the reoccurring theme of the entire letter. What this passage reminds us is that it is essential that we have a biblical understanding of conversion. And that affects every part of the church. Throughout this whole series, we're asking the question, how do we be a healthy church? Well, this is exactly uh, an answer to that question. We need to understand what it means to be regenerate. We need to understand what it means to be converted, truly. Why do we need to answer that question? Why is that helpful for us to understand that? Well, because the church is not a building. The church is not a set of programs. The church is a group of people. And if we don't know who's saved, how do we even know who we are? What about evangelism? There's direct application here. Think of how much damage has been done when we teach that becoming a Christian is just a decision that you make. And so we press for decisions, but we don't press for discipleship. We press for people to take up a title, but we don't tell people to take up their cross. People are baptized, they're reassured of their eternal destiny, yet we completely downplay the spirit's work of regenerating dead hearts there are countless numbers of people who are walking around today thinking that they're a christian but they don't know the true gospel it's a tragedy too many times people's lives mirror that of the false teachers we read about in crete in chapter 1 verse 16 it says they profess to know god but they deny him by their works Let's be a church that commits to and preaches the whole gospel. And let's be consistent and clear that the burden we feel when we read that list of seven things that we need to do, we we can't do that from our own volition. We can't do that by simply being good enough. We can only do that by God's grace, God's regenerative uh, work in our hearts. But let's actually look at those commands and take them seriously. We need to live in this way for God's glory, for our good, and for the good of the world around us. God has been so clear that we are to live out this way, to submit to and obey those that God has placed over us. Of course, with all the qualifiers. If they tell us to do something that's sin, we're not going to do it. We will obey God and not man. But we, we need to remember what we just said. We will obey God and not man. What does God say in his word? He says, submit to and obey the authorities. We need to Live this kind of way. We need to be ready for every good work. Imagine if we as Christians lived this way. Like a sprinter waiting on the blocks for every good work. And when the opportunity comes up to to, to do a good work, we do it. Not for our salvation, remember. But imagine we lived that out this week. Imagine we lived that out today. When we get up and we walk out of here, imagine if we lived in such a way that we were ready for every good work. What about speaking evil to no one? What if the way we lived our lives was like cool water on the hot fire of gossip in our workplaces or slander in our neighborhoods? What if we actually obeyed scripture and lived peaceably? What if we got over our pride and forgave like God has forgiven us? Completely undeserving. Who can you show mercy to as God has shown you mercy? What if? Well, we can, by God's grace. John Stott again writes, once we have grasped the all-embracing character of this salvation, incomplete accounts of it will never satisfy us. We shall rather determine both to explore and to experience for ourselves the fullness of God's salvation and to share it with other people, the same fullness, refusing to go along with any form of truncated or trivialized gospel. May that be so in our church. May God capture our hearts again with the gospel. May God help us to see how he cuts into the deadness of our sin and the deadness of our world with the good news of grace, with his loving kindness and mercy. May God give us the strength to comprehend the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. May God help us to live with hope between the cross and the eternal hope of eternal life. And may God help us to recover a biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration in our hearts. And may God help us to be ready for every good work, to insist on these things, and to devote ourselves to good works. May we do that for the good of all people and for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we desperately need your help. Desperately need your help. Lord, we thank you for your word. The fact that we don't have to read verses one and two in isolation from the hope that that we have that you have done a work in us. Lord, we thank you that we don't need to stay dead in our sin, but we can be made alive through the work that you have done and are doing in our hearts. Lord, if there is anyone here whose heart is still shriveled up and dead, Lord, would you do a work that only you can do? And Lord, for all of us, encourage us to live lives devoted to good works, not for our salvation, not at all for our salvation, but for the good of those around us and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters.